Hey everyone, this is Jeff Fry, Research Director and Course Instructor here at Elite HRV. So many of us struggle with meditation. We know we should do it, but when we do, we wonder, is this even working? Or we question, am I doing this right? At Elite HRV, we take a data-driven approach to meditation by measuring our mindfulness using HRV biofeedback. A practice proven to improve HRV, mood, sleep quality, athletic recovery, and blood pressure, as well as reduce stress and anxiety levels. Just as we build muscular strength in the gym by lifting weights, we can strengthen and balance our autonomic nervous system through HRV biofeedback training. If you're interested in learning more, I invite you to check out our course entitled Biofeedback Training for HRV Optimization by going to EliteHRV.com forward slash HRV Biofeedback. Welcome back to the Elite HRV podcast. This is your host, Jason Moore. And today we have Sten Stray Gunderson joining us. And Sten is a scientist and exercise geek who is here to share more information about blood flow restriction exercise. This is something that I've personally tried in the past, but we haven't really talked about on the show. So I'm excited to dig into it. Um, in a nutshell, blood flow restriction is uh, a way to uh, inhibit blood flow, I guess, uh, if you might guess. Um, but it slows down and impedes blood flow to the limbs by restricting flow through the veins. We're going to dig into all about how this works, but I just wanted to give two sentences real quick about why this might be interesting. Well, basically, by doing blood flow restriction, you can mimic the environment that muscles and tissues experience under higher intensity and volume exercises, which releases growth hormone and other anabolic hormones and things into the bloodstream. And all of these hormones and uh, kind of rebuilding anabolic processes can cascade throughout the body and facilitate repair and building of tissues um, that that were working uh, during that exercise, but apparently blood flow restriction can achieve all of this under lighter loads with less volume, less exercise than you would typically need to stimulate that type of activity in the body. We're going to learn all about this today. That's just kind of the two sentence overview. Sten, welcome to the show. Hey, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you know, I kind of, hopefully I didn't butcher the description of blood flow restriction too much there. Not at all. That's actually, I, I will say that was one of the better descriptions I've, I've heard uh, from anyone. So I'm, I'm excited for this podcast where you can dig into some, some really good stuff. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, uh, I, I mentioned training and like high intensity and volume and kind of mimicking that under lighter loads and less volume. Um, but before we kind of dig into the why, the how, and all of that of blood flow restriction training, you know, what all is it actually used for? Yeah, and and so I, I would like to expand a little bit uh, on 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 your kind of introduction and and just say um, that really what we're trying to do is is like you say create the same environment within that local muscle tissue that that it experiences when it's undergoing high loads or high intensity exercise, um, and we do that by a, well there's sort of two avenues by which this is accomplished uh, currently in the literature and just in practice with people using this. Um, really it's like you mentioned the restriction of venous flow and that's that's kind of the the uh, origin of, of blood flow restriction is really where it came out of Japan um, via Katsu 
uh, was really the idea was to restrict venous flow, right? The, the blood flow coming out of the muscle, the capillaries going de desaturated, uh, going back to the heart to be uh, pumped then into the pulmonary circulation, resaturated, and then pumped again, once again, into systemic circulation. Um, that is one way to achieve it. And you do inhibit and restrict the normal flow of blood. And so uh, by backing up one end of the, of the stream, you end up uh, impeding somewhat or inhibiting somewhat, restricting, uh, as it were, the inflow of blood into a given area of, of muscle. But we're not mechanically restricting the actual artery and limiting how much arterial flow is going in um, mechanically. Now, if we look at other forms of, of BFR where we're using wide rigid cuffs, uh, the, the technique is to actually go up to a limb occlusion pressure. So what that means is completely cutting off the, the artery going into that limb, um, then backing off whether it's 90% of that or 40% of that. And then performing exercises um, once you have achieved that that whatever percentage of arterial flow that you've occluded, and so that's kind of more kind of uh, been made into occlusion training. So when you hear occlusion training, um, it's somewhat different than blood flow restriction, although they're used fairly interchangeably. Um, and so maybe that's uh, one of the purposes of of possibly talking about this is really trying to uh, differentiate various forms. Um, but that, that's essentially the, the two avenues by which you can achieve blood flow restriction. Um, and, and then you perform lightweight exercises, uh, again, simulating the same environment as like a high intensity, high load situation. Um, but right now in the literature, to answer your question, uh, really it's being used for a wide variety of, of things. Uh, where I've seen it most popular is in the rehab setting. So looking at ACL injuries, looking at MCL injuries, looking at hip injuries, uh, you know, a lot, a multitude of joint injuries, uh, but also in the clinical population. So this is being used to help treat um, MS. Uh, it's being used to help treat other neurological or uh, neuromuscular uh, uh, pathologies. Uh, it's also used uh, to help those who can't exercise normally, who, who would not be able to tolerate any high loads or high intensity exercise. Um, they're able to do light intensity stuff and so that they're able to use this as well. Um, but perhaps more to, geared towards your audience, this is also being used by uh, very, you know, uh, regular people or very fit people in order to either augment or completely replace their their heavy lifting or high intensity exercise. Awesome. Yeah, no, thank you for that. That's, uh, that's great to differentiate as well between the occlusion and restriction as with anything kind of in this health and wellness and fitness world. Um, sometimes words are just tossed around casually and then uh, you hear something on the internet you kind of go okay I'm just going to get a tourniquet and yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> put it around my you know neck and then uh, yeah. wait what what are we doing here again um, yeah. right and that, that so, is ill-advised I, I would <laughs> don't do that don't, if you, don't yeah, do not do that. Um, so, but what we're talking about here is okay. So, there's all these different use cases, um, and you mentioned kind of at the end there that people, uh, like everyday people, can even use this uh, outside of the rehab space. Um, and you know what? Okay, so how does how does it actually work? You know that we can get more into the science and everything in a moment. But you know what are we talking about actually doing when we're talking about blood flow restriction? Yeah. So. Uh, this is a really good question, and and to be honest, uh, as a as a researcher, I'm always hesitant to say that there is a uh, you know a, a tried and true proposed mechanism. 
but this is kind of the general way that we that we have thought about this and and what we think makes the most sense. Um, so what's really happening is while you're restricting blood flow um, to that muscle, uh, that muscle has uh, enough oxygen initially to be able to to uh, perform lightweight exercises, which would re only require really your type one fibers, your slow twitch fibers, your oxidative fibers, um, in order to perform that work, produce enough ATP in order to uh, elicit muscle contraction. Um, once once you start uh, restricting blood flow, you now mess with that oxygen supply to that muscle. And so very quickly within one set or two sets of 20 to 30 reps, you very quickly exhaust the oxygen within that muscle. And now you're, you're forcibly depending on your type two faster twitch muscles, which are uh, fundamentally more anaerobic or not needing oxygen to produce ATP in order to uh, sustain that muscle contraction, sustain that exercise, sustain that movement. And by doing that, by, by doing repetitive and successive sets and recruiting those fibers gradually, more and more gradually, uh, you then stimulate those fibers to, uh, to get fatigued. And really, the, that fatigue signal is then, is then kind of recorded in the brain or sent to the brain, as well as local factors that are, under, that are going on within the muscle itself. And that is, that is the trigger or the, uh, the fatigue signal is the trigger in order for adaptation to occur. And this is this is the case with all exercise. Um, really, what what one of the things I want I want to get across is that BFR is is not really a um, it is a new thing in that we're taking advantage of the existing uh, existing physiology, but we're not going uh, above and beyond or, or or around anything in terms of the underlying physiology. This is really again taking advantage of of what we know about exercise and and how we can actually adapt from that exercise, and so. Really, again, as we recruit those those higher and higher motor, uh, or higher and higher threshold motor units, we are stimulating more and more uh, con muscle contraction, recruiting more and more muscle, which again is all a signal for adaptation. Basically, your body saying we're not up to snuff, and we need to adapt in order to be able to perform this exercise. Awesome, yeah, and and it seems like uh, you know, kind of there there seems to be an increasing interest in this, uh, not only in the practical uh, side of things, but in research, um, increasing research in this field. And so there is research. What's kind of your take of the research being more on the academic side of things as well sometimes? Yeah. So I, I would say um, it's really a burgeoning kind of field of, of research right now. There, there are more and more studies coming out on BFR uh, within really, uh, we've almost seen, a, seen an almost exponential increase in the last in the last five to ten years of, of research, particularly westernized research, uh, looking at this stuff. Um, like I like I mentioned, this has been actually in Japan for uh, 30, 40 plus years, and so uh, they've actually done quite a few studies uh, with Katsu and really looking at the venous restriction side of things. Uh, now, kind of as it's become westernized, um, there's been a lot of um, push for using tourniquets, uh, surgical tourniquets and uh, blood pressure cuffs in order to kind of do that second second or second um, avenue of actually achieving blood flow restriction, going up to that limb occlusion pressure and backing off. Um, so there, there is a bit of a uh, kind of a push towards that. And I think one of the reasons that that is happening is uh, scientists like numbers. Um, and what's ha what, what you do when you're looking at uh, arterial occlusion pressure is you have a set blood pressure that you're going up to or a set pressure that's going into the cuff. Um, and that's really nice for us to be able to quantify and look, okay, so this person had a 
140 millimeters of mercury pressure. Okay, uh, now they're now they've increased to 150 for the same amount of restriction. There's adaptation occurring, or they're getting a certain level of fatigue at this pressure. Uh, what is it going to be the next time? Is it going to be less? Is it going to be more? Is it more for the legs? Is it more for while you're supine? Is it more while you're standing up? Um, all these variables are at play that you can kind of quantify. With uh, B strong and Katsu, uh, you're really you're really basing your pressures and your um, uh, your exercises based on the fatigue that you're experiencing, and and so that that's what that kind of venous restriction is is really getting at is is trying to trigger the anabolic response that we see from uh, that fatigue signal rather than worrying about uh, what pressures are going to elicit what what effects uh, per se uh, it's really more focused on eliciting fatigue and and in my opinion I, I think that that should be the focus of of any blood flow restriction uh, session is really to get a fatigue signal rather than worrying about um, the pressures necessarily. Gotcha. Yeah. It's, Having said that, it is important to track um, your your pressures throughout um, and see changes that are occurring and 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 that kind of thing to make sure that you're improving or you're doing the right thing. And there's other various protocols that we can kind of go through to to help ensure you're doing it safely and effectively. Yeah, and that's uh, that's something too. Like when, um, in a bit, I'll share a little about my experience, um, either playing with blood flow restriction or occlusion or trying to figure out what it was that I was actually doing. Um, and, uh, but I, I want to ask another question real quick too, because we talked about muscles, um, and, you know, anabolic hormones and, um, um, tissue repair and fatigue and different things. But one thing that you really highlighted was that this is often used, um, to repair and rebuild and rehabilitate joints. And so why, why do joints, you know, what's the, the science going on there with uh, why this is used for your joint tissue repair? Yeah, so a, a couple things going on there. So um, with, with the joint repair, basically when you injure a joint, the, the whole thing is that you want to limit how much atrophy occurs, but you also can't load that joint at, at the moment that it gets injured. And so, so the problem is, and that the problem that's, kind of been happening in the rehab setting is that you have to very gradually introduce load and you don't want to introduce too much because then you can get set back. What's nice about blood flow restriction in the rehab setting is you're able to load the joint very minimally while stimulating the adaptations that you would normally get from high loading. And so that that's really what's going on in terms of the rehab. Now, before this podcast started, you mentioned that you kind of get a proprioceptive benefit from using the bands. You mentioned that uh, when you were going down into a pistol squat, you you almost felt like your your knee was more stable and a little bit stronger. And while while I don't have research to really back this up, it's always good to kind of um, uh, you know expand or, or try to figure this stuff out. And what I what I think may be happening is is sort of multifold. Uh, on the one hand, you're you're stimulating a, you're creating a pressure gradient within the within the limb that is um, restricted. And that is essentially forcing blood into areas that it would otherwise would require a little bit more warm up for. Um, and the joints are particularly uh, low blood flow areas. And so it, it, it takes a lot for them to actually, quote unquote, to get warm. Um, the other thing is that you also release uh, uh, metabolites, which, which increase vasodilation in those areas. As, as you perform muscle contractions, th those metabolites actually have a vasodilatory effect uh, on the capillaries as well as the blood vessels that are going into and out of the muscle. 
And so that might just, just in that might increase the amount of blood flow that's, that's going there. We're really good. We're really good at uh, optimizing blood flow to the muscles that are working. Um, and really what blood flow restriction does is it kind of messes with that, uh, that optimization of blood flow. Uh, and so you, you suddenly all of a sudden have this uh, vasodilatory uh, response to metabolites building up, but you're not getting as much sympathetic and, and systemic vasoconstriction. And, and so what's happening is as, as more and more blood is going in there, it's being, it's being filled up and, and you're just kind of more aware of that area. The other thing that's happening more systemically is a bit of an endorphin release from the fatigue signal that's being sent to your brain. And that endorphin release, among other things, among a, a host of a hormonal cascade that, that occurs in response to that fatigue, that will kind of give you a bump and a little bit more awareness. I, I, I've definitely experienced this outside the context of BFR in, in a warm-up. Um, once you start warming up, once you kind of get that second wind, all of a sudden you're much more proprioceptive, you're much more aware of where you are in space and time, and, and you're able to kind of uh, move more freely and, and more effectively. Wow, there's so much there that I actually wasn't expecting. As soon as you say it, it really makes a lot of sense to me. But, you know, I was kind of thinking more just mechanically about this whole thing where, okay, we're restricting flow. So that's kind of either creating stability through pressure, you know, that type of stuff. But then taking it all the way into increased proprioception and awareness and you know, bodily awareness and all of that kind of stimulating the nervous system in different ways as well. That's right. all really fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, I think it's super cool. And um, another thing that I, that I sort of left out was, you know, a, a nerve won't operate effectively. And more importantly, the tissue that that nerve is innervating won't operate effectively without uh, proper blood flow. So even if that signal is being sent, and, and I'm sure you've experienced, I'm sure some of the listeners have experienced this, when you're trying to get like your glutes to turn on, for example, they won't turn on, you're not as, not as, not as explosive. Part of that is just turning on your, your neurological, neuromuscular system. Um, and so I think one of the other things that, that BFR is able to do is, is really turn that system on a little bit faster and get activation going a little bit faster as well, for all those reasons I mentioned. That's awesome. Yeah. And you kind of hinted a little at my experience there, which was um, a few years ago, I was traveling uh, extensively and um, I basically was just doing a lot of body weight exercise while out on the road. And there's not a lot of things that are easy to carry with you uh, from an exercise perspective to, um, you know, body weight is great, but sometimes you kind of want to enhance your practice a little, especially if you're kind of time constrained as well. Um, which we can actually talk about the time time aspect of this because that's probably one of the most practical, uh, yeah. practically exciting things about it. Um, but I was carrying some essentially boxing wraps, which normally you kind of like wrap all around your hands to put under your boxing gloves. Um, I happen to already have those from some previous Muay Thai training. And um, so I was experimenting with blood flow restriction training, or at least what I thought was blood flow restriction training. Um, and one example that you mentioned was that I would wrap my upper quad, my upper thigh really close to the hip and, uh, I'd wrap my wrap around that. And then I would do pistol squats while standing just on that one leg, uh, doing one legged squats essentially. And I was actually normally not, I would normally would not recommend high volume pistol squats to most people because of joint uh, the joint adaptations and things that you have to do to be able to kind of sustain, 
a lot of those, um, especially in the knee and uh, things like that. But I practiced pistol squats pretty uh, heavily over the past years as one does, right? That's normal for everyone, right? Um, But uh, regardless, I felt like with the wrap in place, I was able to, I did experience like a lot more kind of of the pump um, that, that, you know, bodybuilders and types kind of talk about sometimes. Um, But then also my knee felt more stable and I felt like I was able to do more reps, even though the wrap wasn't on my knee, it was, it was upstream of the knee, you know, closer to my hips. And uh, so that was kind of interesting. Maybe we could break that experience down. You kind of already talked about some of the reasons why, you know, the stability of my knee or like the proprioception and pressure and things like that were playing a potential role. Um, but what was I actually doing with that strap? <laughs> yeah, so so it, it sounds like you actually did it uh, a lot better than most would with a with a strap. Um, the, the problem with those straps is it's it's a little bit hard to again, kind of going back to what we were talking about. It's a little bit hard to quantify how much pressure you're eliciting on on the on the limb itself. Well, um, I'll, I'll jump in real quick there yeah, and just say it, it did it. I you know. I didn't really know what options were. This was years ago. And um, so I thought it was kind of normal to um, just get it wrong sometimes. So I was like, sometimes I'd get it too tight and it would be uncomfortable. And then I would also like start feeling a little bit tingly in my leg. And I'm like, yeah, this doesn't seem right. So I'd kind of loosen it up. Other, Other times I'd get it too loose and it was kind of like, is this even doing anything? I don't even know. Um, And so then like the times that I'm talking about where I was feeling like knee stable and kind of like getting a little bit of the extra work in and I would do typically like work up to two sets of 20 to 30 on each leg. Um, And I would stay balanced on that leg the whole time, basically not put my other leg down. But um, let me ask you a question. Did you have both legs uh, banded or was this just one leg on and then you switched? Uh, I think once I tried having both legs banded, but I think due to the kind of limitations of using the boxing wraps, right. like it was too hard to get both legs like perfectly pressurized, um, right. you know, and then like, you know, by the time I got through the reps on one leg, it's like my other leg was either too loose or too tight. So I'd have to stop and readjust it or something like that. So um, most of the time just wrapped one at the time because that way what I could do is, I'd wrap it, do a couple reps, see if it felt like I got the pressure right, then rewrap it. And then once I felt like I got it right, I would, you know, do my sets or whatever. But um, so I, I, I think traveling, it was great. And I already had those and I had the time and uh, will to kind of tinker with it. But I'd be curious, like, you know, on the practical side, you know, what what we could do to make that more efficient as well. Yeah, so that that is that you bring up a really good point. Um, so first of all, I'm going to address the, the travel aspect. I mean, the, I, I I don't think there exists a better tool to to travel with and be able to to get a quick workout on. I I don't travel at all anywhere without without uh, a pair of bands, and and I even do I even put the bands on my arms sometimes on my legs while I'm on the flight. If I'm on a, like an international flight or or, or a transcontinental flight um, that's really long, uh, I'll get some blood flow restriction going. Uh, flush out my legs, get some of that lymph out. Uh, that's the kind of building up from from just sitting and at altitude like that. Um, so I, I, I use it as a, my go to 
uh, kind of refresher whenever I'm traveling. And, and it really has made a difference in, in terms of my, my well-being and just my, my state of mind once I get off the plane and, and have to go do, do whatever I'm doing. Um, what I will say is, you know, your experience kind of brings up a good point is, um, yes, you're able to get in a, an effective and safe session with, with kind of wraps that you can go buy on Amazon and things like that. Um, but it does take a little bit more tinkering and you, you have a, certainly a lot less consistency uh, than using something that is, has like a pneumatic pump or, or some kind of uh, objective indication of the pressure that's being elicited on your, on your limbs and, and vascular system. Um, so while, while, so this is a good time to kind of to say this is while I don't recommend using those, um, um, you know, over time consistently and, and particularly it, if you're not using elastic wraps, um, it, it is possible to occlude arterial inflow and, and, and make some of your nerves ischemic or, or lack blood flow. So it can be dangerous. And so if you, if you really don't know what you're doing or, or, uh, don't have experience with, you know, or kind of understanding of the cardiovascular physiology that's going on, I would definitely, uh, not recommend using those, those cheaper wraps. Um, and I would definitely look, look towards something that has some kind of numerical pneumatic, uh, pressurizing system. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And I think that was kind of where I left off with it was basically, um, I thought it, it, it seemed to work well. Um, I went back home and I didn't travel for a while and kind of got back into my routine. But the thing, the main kind of sticking point for me was that the tinkering with it constantly to figure out what the pressure actually was and, and all that was a big enough barrier for me uh, to not continue with it, even though I thought it, it was when I got it right, seeming to work. Um, but yeah, so that, so that kind of, at the time, I wasn't aware of tools and things that could really do that um, more with more precision um, and, and more convenience. So, and I think, you know, if I can uh, make some assumptions uh, or just kind of share uh, some of what we talked about before we hit record, um, is that your, uh, you know, your journey is kind of similar to mine in the sense that we came into these th uh, areas of interest from more of like a data and science-y kind of nerdy interest and then uh, ended up uh, helping contribute to products that can make this stuff easier. You know, for us on the HRV side, making a complicated subject like HRV more accessible to a lot of people uh, with accuracy and precision. And then on your side, um, you know, maybe you could tell us a little about Be Strong and what how that kind of came about and what, what it does. Yeah. So, um, you know, before, before we jump into that, I do, I do want to address one thing that, uh, that you mentioned, uh, in, in terms of the, 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 the pressure and tinkering with that a little bit, because I think that's a, a really good point to, to kind of expand on. Um, one of the things that happens as you start exercising, uh, and, and the limb is being filled with blood, right. And because you're restricting the venous flow out, that limb is now increasing in circumference. Its CSA is increasing. And so one of the reasons why you had to keep tinkering with that with those bands is because your limb is actually growing. Um, and on top of that, your blood pressure is also changing. So this idea that you're going to base your limb occlusion pressure off of blood pressure um, while seated is, is, is not exactly um, a great way to do it because what happens is your your blood pressure is super is extremely variable uh, between being supine, sitting, standing, and then exercising. It's completely different. And so, 
as you as you start exercising, as you get blood flow into that muscle, it's expanding. So you're necessarily going to have to the, the pressure that is being elicited on your on your limb is necessarily changing, and and that's what may cause a little bit of numbness and tingling. Basically, your your the pressure is getting to a point where it's starting to uh, restrict blood in those nerves as well, and you kind of get like the the arm or the leg falling asleep feeling. Gotcha. Um, I, just, I just wanted to kind of mention that as a as as a normal phenomenon that we see. And uh, kind of identifying the, the limb occlusion pressure may not be the best way to actually go about this. Now, but to, to kind of um, answer your, your second question, um, I think, you know, it's, it's uh, if you could repeat that question, actually, sorry, I kind of lost No, no, yeah, no, no worries. Uh, so basically kind of, you know, we talked about the science um, and the benefits and how we're, we're also not trying to um, necessarily hack our physiology. We're trying to actually use it, um, more, uh, or just kind of take advantage of processes that already exist in the body and just kind of make them more efficient through kind of neat use of tools. But then from a practical standpoint, even though like I personally experienced, uh, good things with this type of training is, uh, when I was doing like just kind of wrist wraps that are normally meant for like boxing, they're not meant for this. Um, it was just, it was just enough friction to where I I didn't kind of continue with it. So then I was asking you kind of, you know, in your evolution going from science and exercise nerd and all this type of stuff into the product side of the equation, you know, how can we do this better and what products that you're, uh, kind of helping, uh, improve as well. Yeah, sorry, and thank, thanks for your question. I so my my first experience with blood flow restriction was actually through Katsu, and um, uh, so I was a soccer player at Dartmouth, um, and I was I was training, and uh, my dad has actually been in this field a lot longer than I have. Um, so he's he was actually one of the um, um, first people to look at uh, high low training and came up with the uh, live high train low uh, exercise program where. You're basically boosting uh, hematological variables, uh, blood markers like red blood cells, hemoglobin, um, obviously hematocrit, red blood cells, um, at high, living at high altitude, but also maintaining your training intensity uh, by going and training down and doing high high intensity interval training down at sea level. Um, and this was kind of the mi- nice mix between uh, living at high altitude, but also maintaining your fitness at low inten- at low at low levels of altitude. Anyway, that's a little bit of a digression, but essentially he, he was approached by Katsu um, and they wanted to kind of bring it to, to the States. Um, and so I was, as always, I was a nice guinea pig um, for the, to try this on. Um, I've been lucky enough to be a guinea pig for a lot of different uh, experiments <laughs> for, for my dad, all, all with having to do with exercise physiology. So I, I count myself lucky in that regard. Um, but I started using this, and I was amazed by the basically the augmentation of of what of what it was doing to my normal training. And I started feeling more explosive, more powerful. I was recovering faster. Um, and then all of a sudden, my you know my my teammates were like, "What what the hell are you doing? You know, you're wrapping these these bands in your arms." Um, and it was it kind of became a thing, uh, you know, um, on the team, um, and they and everybody loved it. So uh, that really was like the first eye opening point for me, and it really. Uh, you know, at that time, I was trying to play professional soccer after school. So it wasn't really on my mind to get into research per se. But as I started using this more and more and kind of learning more and more from my dad about what's going on on the scientific and physiological level, I became fascinated with it. And that is really what, um, so I, in a lot of ways, I owe blood flow restriction um, 
a lot in terms of getting me interested in the idea of exercise physiology as, as a field. Um, and so from there, I, I applied to various schools and ended up getting into UT Austin, uh, where I was studying under Dr. Tanaka, Hirofumi Tanaka, uh, who is a cardiovascular expert and really focuses on cardiovascular aging and the, the effects of aging on the cardiovascular system specifically. And so blood flow restriction, he's also, he's also Japanese. So he was actually able, he, he had kind of had a, a, a personal, uh, kind of like view into, into kind of what all this blood flow restriction was all about. And so we, we talked and we decided to, to do a study together, really looking at the blood pressure responses to various forms of blood flow restriction. Um, and so that's kind of where it melded into really a science for me in, in an area of study. Um, so, but it kind of organically came from being an athlete and using it and seeing the benefits. Um, about somewhere in between that time, I ended up blowing out my knee. I had a grade three, uh, almost grade four MCL tear, um, mm -hmm. a meniscus tear, meniscal tear, LCL uh, tear, or, or grade two tear, and a PCL uh, tear as well. Um, playing soccer, opened up, uh, a guy kind of came in and slide, tackle, slide tackled me and blew out my knee. Uh, and uh, I wanted, I basically wanted to see if, if blood flow restriction, among other things, would, would accelerate this process. I, I, had a, I had a pretty good hypothesis, and um, it, it, I was told that it was going to be a 12 to 16-week uh, rehab and recovery, uh, that I would lose a bunch of muscle mass in my quad. I started uh, doing blood flow restriction literally that night. Um, I did a series of inflation and deflation to kind of flush the area out. Uh, and then I, I went on an eight-week program, uh, BFR twice a day, and using uh, an anti-gravity treadmill to kind of uh, help, help me walk. And I actually used the, the flow restriction bands while on the anti-gravity treadmill. So I was at a lower load, but still getting the benefits of, of, of walking. Uh, in six weeks, I was able to run at 100% body weight. And at eight weeks, I was back to playing. So that means passing, cutting, uh, sprinting, and things like that. Um, now, I did still kind of feel my knee. But functionally, it was essentially recovered. Um, so by that standard, I, I basically cut my recovery time in half. Um, and that's where I was really, you know, before I had been using it for my fitness, um, I was fairly fit. So, you know, you can improve, you know, 5%, 10%, but it's hard to see those differences. Um, with this, I was, I was really blown away. And it was the point I was, at which I was um, sort of, okay, I really want to study this stuff and see what it's all about. Nice. Go down the rabbit hole. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's, uh, well, you know, I don't want to, uh, uh, say that it was good that that happened, but for, uh, for those of us that are learning about this now, you know, thanks for taking a slide tackle for us and getting interested in this subject. Yeah, no, no problem. It helped me out too. And I will say, so, uh, the, the first iteration of, of me in college, uh, was really using Katsu. And then in my senior year, uh, my dad actually came up with, uh, my dad and his partner, Sean Whalen. Um, and also his Sean Waven's dad, uh, who's an engineer, came up with this idea for Be Strong, which essentially was mimicking the idea of venous restriction, but trying to solve a, a bunch of issues uh, that we thought were out there. So the cost. So normally uh, a set would cost you between $2,500 and $5,000. Uh, we brought that down to uh, uh, hundreds of dollars, so about $400. Uh, the other thing was it, it wasn't super versatile. You couldn't use them in water. You couldn't use them, uh, running as much because they were a little bit bulky. So we made them more slim. The other thing was comfortability. I'm, I'm sure that you've had this experience. It's not exactly the most comfortable thing doing blood flow restriction. Um, but 
one of our one of the special things about Be Strong is the barrel design, which sort of dissipate, dissipates that pressure across the vascular system and the limb itself. So really, while maintaining adequate and sufficient restriction to enact a, an effective BFR session, it's it's the most comfortable a band can be because of this of this design. Um, and it, it part of that design is really this this elastic, partially elastic design. Um, Katsu and Be Strong are kind of categorized in this pneumatic, uh, partially elastic design, whereas uh, wide rigid cuffs like blood pressure cuffs or surgical tourniquets um, really have no give in them. And so they can be a little bit more uncomfortable. Um, they're obviously able to, and the purpose is to occlude arterial inflow, which also can be uncomfortable. So really, we tried to look at all these different factors that, that people would come back and say, hey, like, I love this stuff, but X, Y, and Z is, is wrong with it. Uh, what, what can we do? And so he saw an opportunity to, to create this. And, and in my opinion, I mean, I use this stuff every day. I, I love it. Uh, it really does work. And, and so that, that recovery from that ACE, or the MCL uh, was all through this Be Strong. So um, it is certainly effective um, and really convinced me that um, this was a great area and that was right for study. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds like definitely a lot of thought has gone into it. And um, in reality, you know, I find kind of um, the things that you use, uh, let's say that they work, um, the things that you use are better than the things you won't use. <laughs> um, it's to, assuming that they work, of course. Um, but uh, so that that really kind of sounds like it removes a lot of the friction from the equation um, and even lowers quite, the price. Quite literally, actually, yes. <laughs> right. Literally and figuratively. Right. And, uh, well, you know, the elastic band part or the elasticity part is really interesting as well, because, um, as soon as you say that, it kind of makes sense to me that, um, when you move, you're already changing, you know, like you said, the diameter, the pressure, um, the position of your body. And so it's not going to stay equivalent the whole time through throughout movements. Right. And so by having like a completely static, um, you know, point in that system, you're going to be increasing and decreasing pressure as you move, which is uh, maybe not necessarily always what you want to be doing. Um, and if you have something that can adapt a little bit with you, then that might be uh, stronger. Yeah. And this actually, this brings up a good point because the reason why, one of the main reasons why an elastic band is, is, is certainly preferred is because it allows, so we have this mechanism um, to get, to force blood back to our heart to increase venous return. It's called the skeletal muscle pump. So every time you contract a muscle, uh, your muscles compress that area where they're contracting and force blood um, out of that area. Now, the good thing about our veins is that they're, they have one-way valves. So the blood flow can only go in one way, uh, as opposed to the arteries where you have a little bit of retrograde flow, but generally the flow is so strong that you don't have to really worry about blood going back. Um, what happens with the skeletal muscle pump is every time you contract, it, it forces blood past that, that uh, venous blockade that's being elicited by the band. Now, when you have a wide rigid system, it's much harder for that blood to be pumped back. A, be, one, one reason being uh, it's harder to contract that muscle in order to, to, to elicit that. And, and B, uh, there's no give with the muscle contraction. And so that's actually one of the things that people might notice if they use, use BFR in general is during the rest periods, you actually, it's, it's almost the more painful period of the exercise uh, where you're getting this buildup of blood flow, but there's, it's not going anywhere because it's being stopped and dammed up on the, on the venous side. As soon as you start actually contracting or even raise your arms above your head, for example, 
that pain and that pressure starts to dissipate. Um, and, and again, that, that's, that's what's going on with an elastic band where it's much harder to achieve that um, kind of safe and effective window with a, with a rigid cuff, with a rigid system. And the last thing, you know, kind of like summarizing here, my interest in this subject is, um, you know, you can, you don't, you don't have to do blood flow restriction training to recover from injury. You don't have to do it to get stronger, faster and all of that stuff. But ultimately for me, time is one of the most precious resources that I have. And, uh, I think that's increasingly the case for everyone um, as we're pulled in many different directions in life and sport and school and work and all of that. And so if you're able to get, you know, the same or better results in less time in some cases, then that's a really big kind of draw for me. And so that's kind of what really attracts me to looking into blood flow restriction training and things like that. Um and especially if it seems like they're, I'm also like very skeptical of things that seem like they're shortcuts. Um, and especially, you know, uh, things that have kind of um, potentially strong unknown side effects. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me like blood flow restriction st- training is a very low risk for most cases that I'm aware of. Um and, uh, you know, you kind of, you, it even has that component, which is really nice of where you can feel if it's working or not. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, that's just it. That's just kind of like why I was just excited to have this conversation because I had some exposure to it, a little bit of understanding of kind of the physiology and research behind it, but I wanted to dig into a little bit more of it because of the time-saving potential. Yeah. So this actually, it's, I think this is a ripe time for kind of BFR to start increasing its popularity. Like I said, it's been around for a long time, but it's, I think just now, really in the last five years, it's, it's really exploding in terms of um, people within our, our, our area of expertise um, kind, of, kind of catching on to it. Uh, and one of those reasons is, is the idea that of this high-intensity interval training um, and these Tabata-like workouts, which are really are short-duration workouts for really high intensity. Um, and that's, we've seen that stimulate and, and basically um, keep keep a chronic effect on your metabolism and your muscle building and, and multi, muscle protein synthesis over like a, you know, a 24 hour period where you're recovering and then you do it the next day. So, so what's really nice about blood flow restriction is that you can get a maximal workout in, in as little as 15 to 20 minutes, um, a full body workout. And, and it might seem like, Oh, Hey, I'm not burning as many calories during that session or during a session where I would be running, running for an hour, let's say. But really, it's this it's this post exercise or post uh, um, uh, uh, excessive oxygen debt that you're creating that you're needing to then replace uh, the other 23 hours of the day uh, until you do your next session. And this this is what stimulates uh, an increase in RMR, resting resting metabolic rate, uh, as well as muscle protein synthesis, which has a whole host of factors that you know ultimately build muscle and reduce. Uh, uh, and reduce fat or lipid storage. And so uh, one of the things that actually relates to, to what you do is this heart rate variability. And something that's really interesting about blood flow restriction is, you know, during the workout, you do have uh, low variability, right? You have a sympathetic response to that, mm-hmm. to that exercise. But because the absolute load, the external load uh, is, is, is lower, the relative load is high, but the external load is lower, the, that sympathetic state 
you don't stay in it for very long. And particularly after you actually, we've seen a, a more parasympathetic state, uh, better, better heart rate variability, uh, whether it is uh, hours after the, the exercise or before you go to bed. Um, so it's less overall stress ex on the, like in terms of external load, but that relative stress is enough to signal adaptations in your body and have those adaptations really expand throughout the next day and beyond. Wow, that's a pretty interesting little tidbit for the folks that make it to the end of the episode. They're going to be like, "Oh, cool! That was a that was definitely worth like, you know, sticking it out to hear." Because if you know, for those listening, uh, many of you are measuring your HRV. You have access to uh, an HRV tool of some sort. If you then, um, you know, check out blood flow restriction training, we would love to hear what your experience is like with it. And also to see if you kind of personally see that HRV change in uh, your post-workout uh, recovery window or even the night, uh, the evening or the next morning. Yeah. And, I, you know, this is something that I've certainly experienced and, and seen in other people, Um it's really, it's really effective and, and strangely enough, it's really effective at, at keeping people lean and getting people lean uh, with a minimal effective dose. And so maybe, you know, in these last couple of minutes, we can talk about what, what a normal protocol exercise session would look like. You know, there's various, there's various protocols out there. Um, kind of the most, uh, the most, the original one was this three, three sets of 30 reps um, of various exercises. Uh, what's, what I've had success with is really uh, kind of like a pre-exhaust on the first set kind of uh, depleting all that oxygen and other uh, substrates that are in the muscle in the first set. So kind of almost maxing out, shooting for 20 to 40 reps, depending on the exercise you're doing. Uh, and then doing a set of three more sets of 15 to 20. Uh, because at that point, you've really exhausted most of the oxygen in that, in that muscle, and you're really depending on those type 2 fibers, which really are the, are the fibers that are responsible for muscle hypertrophy. You know, when we train our oxidative fibers, we essentially increase the, the capillary density around those fibers and make them more efficient at, at using oxygen and then producing ATP. Whereas with type two fibers and these, these um, anaerobic fibers, we're really making them bigger so that they can produce more, for, more force per muscle unit um, and, and, and ultimately more, uh, more power per, per muscle fiber. Awesome. Wow. Yeah. So there's so much to dig into with this stuff. Um, well, Sten, this has been really awesome. Um, what, uh, you know, if you have other information or where can people find more about what you're doing and your, you know, your work or the work of Be Strong, you know, where should people look? Yeah. So uh, my research right now is, is more generally focused on hypoxia. And so um, BFR is a really good stimulus to induce local hypoxia in the muscle. We get, we get desaturated down almost to zero in some cases. Um, so hypoxia is really an awesome stimulus for the body to adapt. Um, and I'm also studying the effects of systemic hypoxia. Um, it, it's called intermittent hypoxia, where we look at uh, titrating and nitrogen into a breathing tube to then lower the, the actual concentration of oxygen. And that also has a host of adaptations that occur from that. Um, and so... Uh, some of my studies that have that have gone out there now have to do with the cardiovascular and hemodynamics during a, a BFR session, um, and so you can check me out at uh, at a couple on a couple of those studies, uh, walking with blood flow restriction and hemodynamic responses to blood flow restriction in combination with yoga. Um, I, I think I've I've sent you guys links, so maybe you can include that in in the link for this um, this session. Um, I'm also you can find me on LinkedIn. 
And, and please check out bestrongtraining.com. Um, once again, I, uh, while I'm not a salesman, I'm a, I'm a scientist first. I, I do think that this is, this is the best BFR product on the market and something that I, I've been using for a long time now and have had a lot of success with. Uh, as well as other people that I've introduced it to and, and also have uh, a lot of success with and are just thrilled about it. Um, so I, I definitely uh, would like, uh, would, you know, tell, tell your audience to, to check that out. Um, and um, if they want to contact me via LinkedIn, um, uh, feel free to do so. That's awesome. Yes. And this has been really informative. And thanks for just like diving right in with me at the beginning and uh, getting into all this. So, uh, we will post links on the show notes. So uh, same spot as usual, elitehrv.com slash podcast. And also if you're listening in a podcast app, it's usually in the little description there as well. Um, but yeah, so bestrongtraining.com and Sten's research is also out there, um, that, which we will link to. Uh, but, but Sten, thanks so much for your time today. Jason, thanks so much for having me. It's awesome to talk about this stuff. Oh yeah, you know, I feel like uh, next time we should, uh, uh, you know, put one of the devices on during the show and see see what happens, uh, something like that. <laughs> you caught me. I was uh, I I didn't I didn't fully know this was going to be an audio recording, so I've actually been having the bands on uh, throughout this this conversation, uh, going through my an inflation and deflation uh, period, and I, I I do notice it increases my my focus throughout throughout a presentation or or, or similar setting, so. Um, so next time we'll, we'll have you do it, uh, and, and we'll, we'll get you some bands. Awesome. That? That'd be great. <laughs> All right. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you next time.